Thessalonians. We're in this study I've entitled Living with Hope. This was written to some first century Christians to whom the world around them quite literally seemed hopeless. There is a moral and ethical nosedive happening in the culture. Can you relate? There is opposition against them personally and even professionally because they are now followers of Christ, Christ themselves. And so they were in some difficult circumstances. And Paul is writing to them. And the overarching theme of this passage and the overarching theme of our year is we can be hopeful even in hopeless times. The chief among those reasons he gives to them throughout this book of 1 Thessalonians and next fall we'll see in, in 2 Thessalonians is that Christ is coming back again. Jesus is returning. He's coming to establish and to set up his kingdom on this earth fully and finally and all of the foes of Christ and his church will be vanquished forever. So he's saying, live with hope. Have this confident expectancy. Well, this week I'm preaching a message I've entitled, Brotherly Love. Brotherly Love. You see, as he's giving this instruction to this church on how to live hopeful in what seems to be hopeless times, a critical component of this hopeful living is that we interact with one another with Philadelphia, with brotherly love. And, you know, each week we say here, welcome home. We're a spiritual family. We do life together. And this certainly fits right into that theme for our church. So let's read our passage together. Chapter 4, beginning of verse 9. Here's God's word. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia's, Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, we turned our page in our Bible to chapter 4, and I just focused on the first two verses of chapter 4, which really introduced the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And these first two verses of chapter 4, we saw how uh, the Apostle Paul gives really this overarching instruction, how you ought to walk and to please God. And everything else that follows is how we should walk as Christians and in that walking bring, bring, bring pleasure to God. Now what that does is this, it shows God off. It throws a spotlight on the character of God. It gives glory to God, and that's what we're to be about. Now, the first ex uh, area we examined a couple of weeks ago was with regard to our purity, sexual purity, namely. That as Christians, we throw a spotlight on the glory of God when we walk in sexual purity, when we walk in holiness as blood-bought believers in Christ. Our sexual ethic should be out of step with the world. You know, I find it interesting and sometimes kind of almost humorous, well, maybe not humorous, curious, that the world in which we live, which is growing increasingly out of step with God's design for human sexuality, is so shocked when a Christian institution or a university makes statements 
with regard to biblical ethics and human sexuality. This is what we've believed for 2,000 years. We've not changed. True believers have always believed that. But now Paul turns his attention on how we can walk in a way that is pleasing to God with how we show affection and brotherly love to one another. Now let me tell you where this instruction is coming from. As I mentioned a moment ago, the hope that Paul puts forward for them is the fact that Christ is returning. Christ is coming back. And there's no doubt in my mind that when Paul established this church, when he was with them for three Sabbaths straight answering their questions, he taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. He made them aware of not only the the basics of the gospel, but also of how to live ethically, how to follow Christ, and even the promise and the hope of Christ's return. Here's how I know, because this is a theme throughout the whole book. You go back to chapter 1, he mentions it in verses 9 and 10. Look at chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. He says, this church is, is a reputation throughout all Macedonia because of how they've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and watch this, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he's future-focused here. Jesus is returning. There's a wrath coming, but we have hoped in him. So they had this eschatological, end-times, prophetic lens through which they were interpreting the world in which they lived. You move into chapter 2, Paul returns to this concept in verse 19. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before Our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And so again, he mentions the return of Jesus. You turn the page to chapter 3, he returns to this theme again in verse 13. He says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So for three chapters, Paul has brought up this theological reality. Jesus is coming back again. But if you've read ahead, chapter 4 and chapter 5, you know what's coming. The bulk of what remains in 1 Thessalonians is extensive teaching on this subject. He's going to clear up some misconceptions that apparently were in the Thessalonian church. And if you've read really ahead into 2 Thessalonians, he comes back to the subject of the return of Christ again. So Paul has been teaching this. He has been explaining this they are eagerly anticipating christ's return but here's the deal their eager anticipation of what was coming in the future had resulted in some not so good attitudes in the present let me say that again their eager anticipation of what was coming in the future had resulted in some not so good attitudes in the present you see they had a zealous but imbalanced anticipation of the return of jesus they had allowed their excitement and their enthusiasm for the return of christ to overshadow the ordinary everyday mundane responsibilities of human life they neglected their everyday duties because of their preoccupation with the prophetic because of this skewed outlook paul needed to bring them back down to earth as it were And in so doing, he really gives four practical principles related to brotherly love in our text today. The first one is this, the example of brotherly love. The example of brotherly love. Now, the way Paul begins his correction of them 
is by commending them. And that's just a little side note for you that have people that you lead. If you ever have to correct somebody, it's always good to begin with some commendation. It kind of softens the blow, if you know what I'm saying. And so Paul does this here. He, he says, I, I've got something I want to commend in you. You've been an example of brotherly love. You have been showing this brotherly love to others throughout all Macedonia. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, though he is writing to them, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, the two words translated brotherly love is one word in the Greek language. It's Philadelphias, from which we get the city Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. And Philadelphias in Greek literally means familial love. It means brotherly love. The, the suffix delphos literally has, has to do with those who are blood-related, those who come from the same womb. So in Paul's day, if a Greek philosopher were to show up to your village and he's giving an oracle on ethics and he starts talking about Philadelphias, you knew and everybody interpreted it, well, he's talking about how family members ought to love each other. Here's what's amazing. Paul takes this word that is exclusively used for familial love, and he says this is how the church is to love one another. This is how Christians are to love one another. This is what believers in Jesus ought to do for one another. He extends and he applies it to Christian love for each other. Our connectedness, our uniqueness as Christians is that we are members of the same family. And so we love each other in that way. But Paul is commending them for this love they have because he says, you know what? You've been a living example of this, Philadelphias. You've been a living example of this love for each other. In all Macedonia, it seems like it comes naturally to them. But does it? No. It comes supernaturally. It comes supernaturally. Paul describes their love for each other in, in a one word in the Greek. It's two words here in our English. You have been, or three words, taught by God. See those three words? In the Greek language, it's this. Theodidactoi. Only place, not only in the Bible, it's the only place in all of first century Greek literature this word is used. So scholars believe Paul made this word up. He coined the phrase, coined a word. Theodidactoi. What does it mean? Theos means God. Didactic means to teach. Literally, it's one word. We don't have to teach you because you have been God-taught. Isn't that awesome? You've been taught by God. Now, it's likely he makes this word up because he has something in the back of his highly educated Jewish mind, namely a prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah 54, 13. Look at Isaiah 54, 13. It says this, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, in the Septuagint, which Paul would have been familiar with, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, these two words, theos didactoi, are right beside each other in this passage. And so it's likely Paul's thinking about Isaiah 54, 13. Here is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. You see, in the Old Covenant, how was God's law delivered to his people? It was written on tablets of stone. But there's a promise in Isaiah in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, that there's coming a new covenant. And in the new covenant, God's law won't be written on tablets of stone, but what? It'll be written on our hearts. And he says, you Thessalonian believers, by the way you're loving each other, it proves to me prophecy is true. 
It proves to me the promise of God is true, that you are God-taught, theodidactoi. This would have been incredibly encouraging to them because, first of all, he's saying, I see the evidence of God working in you. But secondly, I see the evidence that God's word is true. You are God-taught. Look at Jeremiah 31, 34, uh, another promise that fits this. He says, no one will need to tell you, know the Lord, because you're going to know him from the greatest to the least. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. You've been God-taught, so you don't have any need for someone to, to teach you how to love because God's done that for you. This is an encouragement for Paul and from Paul. You know, the Apostle John echoes this concept of being God-taught to love, but he kind of expands it, and he says the reason we are God-taught to love like this is because Jesus loved like this. And it's an evidence that you have, in fact, been brought from death to life, to salvation, if you love like this. Notice how John makes this connection in chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. You're God-taught. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is the new covenant promise. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Loving one another with this new covenant kind of love is evidence that we are, in fact, children of God. Loving one another is evidence of that. And John says, this is God's love manifest. What does that mean? God is spirit. And as spirit, he is invisible. But God makes himself visible to humanity. How does he do that? By sending his own only begotten son to be the wrath-assuaging punishment bearing propitiation sacrifice for our sins but friends god is still making himself visible today as the invisible god how does he do it when we love one another when we love each other with this philadelphia with this brotherly love god's love is manifest on the earth through the body of christ we he is encouraging the the thessalonian christians you make the invisible god visible by the way you're loving each other. And friends, God can be visible in Lookout Valley. God can be visible in Whitwell. God can be visible in Trenton, in East Brainerd, in Red Bank, in Chattanooga, in Tennessee. How? When we love each other. And it's interesting, in this chapter, Paul puts these two things side by side. To use the King James language, chastity and charity sexual purity and love for each other these are a manifestation of the work of god in our lives we're not identified as christians because of a particular fashion accessory we're not identified as christians because we all have the same peculiar haircut 
or we wear weird hats or weird, strange clothes. No, we are identified in the world as Christians by our love for each other. So that's the first thing Paul does is he commends them. He says, you have been a tremendous example of brotherly love. You have been God-taught. Here's the second thing he gives them. Number two, the exhortation to brotherly love. If you'll remember, again, several weeks ago, I described the statement that I heard again and again growing up from my parents, from my teachers. You're doing good, Troy, but you can do better. There's room for improvement. There's always room for improvement. And Paul repeats the exact same exhortation he gave in verse 1 here in verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this. What is the this? Brotherly love that he just commended them for. You do this, how? More and more. And I told you three weeks ago that this more and more in the ESV is really not the best translation because it's not the same word in Greek. It's two different words. Literally means to excel more, to abound more, to exceed the limits more, to surpass expectations more. You're loving each other. Love each other more. Show your love more. And again, I would remind you, this instruction is being given through the lens of the teaching of the coming of Jesus Christ. As we see the coming of the day drawing near, friends, we need to press into brotherly love, press into Philadelphia, press into loving one another more. There might be many other things we we would say, this ought to be the priority if Christ is coming back. The priority, if Christ is really returning, well, what we just did last week, our missions conference. If Christ is really returning... Well, we need to be more about missions. Should we be more about missions? Absolutely. You know what the priority is? Loving each other. More and more as you see the day drawing near. That's the priority for the exhortation that Paul gives, gives here. They were to live in light of the hope of Christ's return. But after he gives this exhortation to excel, to abound, to surpass even more in the way they love each other, then he's going to give some really practical ways in which they do that. I'm calling that the expressions of brotherly love. How is brotherly love supposed to be expressed, demonstrated, portrayed in a local church? Well, three things to note. First, he says, in your church, there should be no noisy people. Look what he says. We urge you, brothers, to do this, what? What's the this? Philadelphia's. Do this, love each other more and more. How? First expression, aspire to live quietly. No noisy people. We are not to be those who are always looking for the limelight. We are not to be those who are always trying to find the camera and get in front of the camera to get our 15 minutes of fame, to be seen by the masses. How do we express brotherly love to each other? Sit down and be quiet. You may say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem to comport with the concept of Jesus coming back. I mean, if Jesus is coming back, shouldn't we we be loud? Shouldn't we be boisterous? Shouldn't we be shouting and yelling and hollering and protesting and making our claims? No, you need to sit down and be quiet. Interesting terminology that Paul uses here. He says, aspire to live quietly. This is almost an oxymoron. The the two terms are like contradictory. 
fact, the New American Standard Bible translates it this way. Your ambition should be to live quietly. I love J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. He says, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Isn't that interesting? The word here for quiet literally means to rest. A noun form is sit down, to sit down. Relax. In the words of Sergeant Hulk, some of you know this reference, relax, Francis. Calm down. Take a chill pill. Don't be so worked up about everything. We don't know how this was manifesting in the Thessalonians' lives, this lack of composure and this personal upheaval, but he's saying, back off. Calm down. Make it your ambition, your goal, your number one agenda to be tranquil. You may say, well, how? Don't you see the world is going to hell in a handbasket? How can I be quiet? Don't you see all the crazy stuff happening in our world? We should be shouting. Why could they be quiet? Because Christ is coming back. He's setting up his kingdom. And all the foes of Christ will be vanquished forever. All that is wrong will be made right. It's not our job to point out every wrong in the world. We're to be quiet. Be tranquil. Rest. Relax in the promise of the coming of God. Don't shout. Relax. Chill. (laughs) He says, no noisy people. Here's a second practical expression of brotherly love. Not only no noisy people, but no nosy people. Can I get an amen? (laughs) No nosy people. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to mind your own affairs. Mind your own business. So he's saying, mind your own business. Don't be a busybody. Don't be trying to find out what's going on in everybody else's lives. Meddling and getting involved in all the little soap opera drama happening here and there. Mind your own affairs. Take care of your own issues. We all got issues, right? Mind your own business. Take care of your own self. This is known as the what about him syndrome. In John chapter 21, Jesus reaffirms his love to the disciple Peter three times in connection with the three times that Peter denied Jesus. And then Jesus tells Peter, and guess what? Uh, You're going to be martyred. You're going to die. What does Peter say? He sees John, the one whom Jesus loved, who leaned up against Jesus at dinner every time. Well, what about him? (laughs) Right? Notice what the text says. When Peter saw him, that's John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Jesus says, mind your own business. Mind your own business. You know, our children are particularly susceptible to this what about him syndrome, aren't they? You scoop out the ice cream for your five kids. Hey, she got more than I got. Right? The younger kids are jealous of the privileges the older kids get. The older kids say, I would have never got away with that. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. So true brotherly love means no nosy people, 
No noisy people. Thirdly, no neglectful people. No neglectful people. He says, but we urge you, brothers, do this, this brotherly love, more and more. What's the practical expression? To work with your hands. That's interesting. Apparently, in this church of Thessalonica, some who had grabbed a hold of the instruction that Christ was, in fact, returning, said, well, if Jesus is coming back, forget life. Forget work. I'm quitting my job. I'm just going to sit on a mountain and dressed in white and wait for Jesus to come back. Interestingly, throughout the 2,000 years of church history, this pattern has been repeated again and again and again. Even within the last 100 years, last 25 years, last five years, some prophetic buff comes with his charts and graphs, and people believe his baloney. They sell all their possessions, they quit their jobs and wait, and then there's the great disappointment. Paul says, Hey guys, go back to work. Get to work. This is how you show brotherly affection to each other, by working. You may have seen the news lately that in our own community here in Lookout Valley, there have been several restaurants that have had to close down sometimes whole days because they can't get workers to show up to work. Hillbilly Willie's, our barbecue place, was shut down for two days last week. Couldn't get a shift. Same way with McDonald's. Weston Womp said he went to to uh, Cracker Barrel, and they had to close down half the um, dining room because they didn't have enough servers show up to serve. Why not? They got their COVID check. Why show up to work when I just got my $400 COVID check? I'll go spend that. Wednesday night, we had our, our meal that was catered by Wally's, and when Glenn, the owner, came in, was talking with him. I said, well, how are things going with your restaurant with all the craziness going on? He says, well, it'd be great if I could get some people to show up to work. He said, I've had several employees come to me and say this, quote, I need you to drop my workload down to 20 hours a week. Why? If I only work 20 hours a week, I'll get partial state unemployment and full federal unemployment. Our government is literally paying people not to work. They're rewarding laziness. I'm not a smart man, but that's not, un- not sustainable. This should not be the mindset of Christians. We work. We have a work ethic. We're not lazy. I've told you before, and it bears repeating. Christians ought to be the hardest working people in the workplace. Not because we're working for our boss or the company owner. Jesus is our supervisor. We work as unto the Lord. And Paul said, I even modeled this for you, Thessalonians. We didn't recognize this, but he's setting them up for this correction. In chapter 2, he says this, Remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Don't mean to be neglectful of this vital component of human society. Go to work. I think this would be a great opportunity to tell you about our work day this Saturday where you get to work with your hands to clean up our facility and our campus for Easter. Back to the text. Interestingly, Paul comes back to these same practical expressions of Philadelphia's brotherly love in the next letter he writes to them in 2 Thessalonians. Notice what he writes to them. Apparently, they didn't fully learn the lessons He says, this is 2 Thessalonians, for even when we were with you, 
we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Don't mean neglectful. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. No nosy people. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work, how? Quietly and to earn their own living. No noisy people. He repeats the same three instructions. Now it's important to point out here that Paul gives them this instruction because they had become severely out of balance. So, walking in balance, listen, are we to faithfully proclaim the gospel to the nations and to the community? Yes. Are we to go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come and speak forth the gospel from our lips and with our lives? Yes. But no noisy people. Are we to, as Galatians 6 tells us, if any brother is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should go to him and restore him in humility? Yes. But we don't meddle in people's affairs just to get in on the gossip. See? Are we as a community of faith to be uh, ones that help one another whenever things are going bad, when things are going wrong? Yes. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But they had become out of balance. These are the expressions of Philadelphia, of brotherly love. But as we move forward, I want to see this conclusion, the final principle, the examination of brotherly love. You see, the way in which we love each other is under examination. It's under a microscope. It's being observed. It's being tested by others. And when you live your life with these kinds of expressions of brotherly love, the result will be these two things he describes in, the, in verse 12. First of all, there will be an impact among outsiders. An impact among outsiders. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. You see, the gospel is not just to be proclaimed with our lips. It is to be adorned with our lives. Friends, laziness does not adorn the gospel of Jesus. Gossip and meddling in people's affairs does not adorn the gospel of Jesus. Facebook rants over whatever the latest controversy is does not adorn the gospel of Jesus. Reveling in other people's misery or misfortune does not adorn the gospel of Jesus. Having grass that is seven inches high because you're too lazy to cut your grass does not adorn the gospel of Jesus. The way we live our lives in these practical ways commends the gospel to a watching world. The people out there will never submit to the claims of the gospel if our lives do not comport with the gospel. They'll have no reason to embrace our faith for themselves. But not only does our practical expressions of brotherly love have an impact on outsiders, but finally it also gives us an independence from insiders. He says it this way, when we love in this way, we will, quote, be dependent on no one. Now, I need to reiterate what I just said a moment ago. There's a balance here. Is there to be interdependence in the church? Absolutely. Are we to bear one another's burdens? Absolutely. Are we to pick those up who are falling? Yes. If one mourns, we all mourn. If one suffers, we all suffer. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. In fact, this was one of the four identifiable marks of the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Notice what Acts 2.45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. But again, this particular church had gotten out of balance. Because Christ is returning, some quit their jobs, and they expected the affluent members of the church to just carry their way. And he says, no, get to work. Paul's offering some course correction here. And again, he comes back to it in 2 Thessalonians. Anybody who doesn't work doesn't eat. Now, you may want to know, where does his brotherly love ultimately come from? What is the foundation of brotherly love? Well, we saw it in 1 John 4. It's the work of Jesus. It's the work of Christ. That Jesus came in a sacrificial act of love. He endured the taunts. And think about it. As he was standing on trial for his life, he opened not his mouth. He wasn't noisy. He wasn't pointing out the faults and the failures of everybody else. He came to die for the faults and the failures of everybody else. And did Christ work? Yeah. He performed the ultimate work through his death, burial, and resurrection. Why did he do that? Because greater love has no one than this, and that a man lay his life down for his friends. And when we have this same kind of love for the brethren, Paul says, it adorns the gospel we proclaim. In fact, I'd like to close with this poem that communicates this very powerfully. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? That leads to my last thought. The most effective witness to our neighbors is our authentic love for each other.